Well, hey, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and open with me to Daniel chapter 11. Because right, we're going to close out this series through the book of Daniel today. This second half of Daniel, faithful for the future. And I guess it was probably Tuesday or Wednesday, but I got to thinking about that show, Doomsday Preppers, on National Geographic Channel. <laughs> Y'all, when it first came out, maybe you were like me. I thought the people on there were a little eccentric, a little excessive, electromagnetic pulses and, you know, super volcanoes, whatever. But man, when your power is out and your water's out and you're eating rice cakes, you start to really rethink your preparedness plan. They might be onto something, you know? Because the deal is, the level of your preparation determines your comfort in that storm. Right? However well you prepared on Sunday, thankfully I, my wife said, you need to go buy some water. I'm like, it's just going to get cold. So I went and bought some water, and I'm glad I did, because we had the water to use. But your level of preparation determines your comfort through the storm. And so maybe you're like me, and rethinking your preparedness plans, you'll never discount a winter storm in Texas. Right? It happens, we know now. So we'll always take it seriously when they say it's coming. But this morning, God wants to speak into your preparedness plan. But not your preparedness plan for hurricane season or for winter weather warnings. But your preparedness plan for the end times. And I really don't mean stockpiling bullets and freeze-dried meals. I mean something different than that. How do you prepare for the end times? This morning, as we conclude this series, we're going to kind of put a ribbon on it, kind of a capstone, sum up everything we've been seeing back since uh, January, to really learn three things. And they're, and they're really three qualities, and I tried to find a better word than that, but they're three qualities that have to characterize our preparedness plan for the end times. They're all right here in Daniel 11, and really in every passage that speaks of the end times in the Bible. But we're going to look at them from Daniel 11. So I hope you're there. The first one we're going to see, the first quality that must be present in your preparedness plan, is peace through turmoil. So we're going to be here together in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I'll tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, and then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he'll arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece, and a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he's arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to the authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Now, this chapter 11 of Daniel continues the vision that we started seeing last Sunday in the online service. Now, I don't know if you remember that or if you had a chance to watch it, but the idea was Daniel was in 21 days of fasting and prayer, and a divine messenger came to him with this fourth and final vision. Right, I told you last week that I believe the divine messenger is the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's Jesus. And you, just, you look at the compare, compare the passages in Ezekiel and Revelation with what you see in Daniel 10, and I'm convinced it's Jesus. 
So Jesus comes to tell Daniel what's going to happen between his day and the end of time. And what we just read covers a period of about 250 years in the span of five verses. And it's probably familiar to you if you've been tracking along with this series. We, we looked at it in Daniel 8 in the vision of the goat and the ram when Daniel was given insight into the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece. And that's what this is, the kingdom of Persia giving way to the kingdom of Greece. We're not going to keep reading. Verses 6 through 35 are really interesting, but I get turned around in them, and they're really uh, specific and detailed. Talk about intermarrying and different battle campaigns and who takes what city. In fact, they're so specific and so detailed that many modern scholars believe that these can't have been genuine prophecy at all, but are rather somebody inserted this chapter into the book of Daniel after the fact. Because what begins in verse 6 all the way to verse 35 basically describes an ongoing conflict between two of the kingdoms that arose from Alexander the Great's Greek kingdom, the kingdom of Syria and the uh, Seleucid Empire and the kingdom in Egypt of the Ptolemies. And they go back and forth for a couple of hundred years, always at war, battling over the Middle East. It builds up until verse 20, 21, uh, sorry, verse 25, 29. Let me just guess again. How about it? Uh, maybe 22? I don't know. No, verse 29 builds up to verse 29 where this back and forth climaxes with this little man, right? The man that we saw in chapter 8, the little horn. Antiochus IV, the one who called himself God in the flesh, God manifest. And verse 29 through 35 describe his reign of terror. And I want to jump in here on verse 32, just so you get the picture. By smooth words, he'll turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they'll be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall, in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. This describes the, the reign of terror. We, we saw it in detail in chapter 8, and I'm not going to go through that again. But this is the rule and reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. When he marched into the city of Jerusalem, uh, slayed people in the streets, set up a golden statue to Zeus on the altar of God, and converted the uh, temple in Jerusalem into a pagan high place. That is what those six verses describe. It, it describes the, the rebellion against him that you could read about in the books of First and Second Maccabees, uh, this Jewish rebellion as they rose up to try to sanctify the temple and, and eventually gained the victory. But then you get into verse 36, and something happens, right? Instead of talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, for the first time in this chapter, the Hebrew phrase is the king, not the king of the north or the king of the south, but the king. Verse 36, it says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he'll prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He'll show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he'll magnify himself above them all. Instead, he'll honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He'll honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. 
He'll take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He'll give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many, and he'll parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships, and he'll enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He'll also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost sons of Ammon. Listen, things change here in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. Daniel's vision stops being about kings rising and falling and instead looks towards the very end of time when this great, terrible king, who the New Testament calls the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist, will arise. And he'll have his way with the world. Listen, if you're thinking about your preparedness plan for the end times, you have to make sure it includes peace through turmoil. Because according to this chapter, political turmoil is the name of the game until the end of time. You need peace through turmoil. You see, Daniel's vision promises that though one king will rise and fall, another one will take his place, not in an ever-ending upward march of progress, but a slow and steady decline into chaos. It's not going to get better. We've seen that over and over through this book, haven't we? It's not about somebody coming on the scene who's finally going to make everything right. No, we know that we're waiting for the day when Christ returns to make everything new. And so Daniel's vision promises future political turmoil, but at the same time, it prepares the people of God to have peace through it. Last week, I showed you at the end of chapter 10, after Daniel hears this vision, he falls on his face and he's kind of overwhelmed. Uh, with the things he's heard. And the divine messenger touches him and lifts him up and speaks to him. Back in Daniel 10, verse 19, he says, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now we come to these prophetic and apocalyptic passages in the Bible. And partly it is uh, kind of Bible trivia to us. You know, we, we sit around, hey, what's your view of the end times? Who do you think the Antichrist is? And these things sort of tickle our curiosities, and we like to think about them. But the reality is that most of the apocalyptic and prophetic passages in the Bible are meant to actually produce something within us, a sense of peace. That even though political turmoil is the name of the game, that's a fact of life here on earth under the human dominion that's expressed in disordered and subhuman ways. At the end of the day, God's in control of it all. And everything progresses according to His plan. So the divine messenger gives Daniel insight and he says, Have peace about it. Don't be worried. Don't lose your head. Have peace. In fact, I told you last week, that peace be with you is the exact same phrase that Jesus spoke to His disciples after His resurrection when He entered through the door of their locked upper room and said, Peace be with you. Everywhere Jesus went, he was talking about peace, right? And if you want to look here, why don't, you, why don't we turn together to John 14. John 14, 27. Jesus is preparing his disciples, not so much for future political turmoil, but for the events of the next day. There's going to be his crucifixion, his death. You can imagine uh, when they start getting insight into that, they start learning that Jesus is about to die. They start to get a little worried and concerned. 
And Jesus looks him in the face in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Listen, your end time preparedness plan has to have peace. And all you have to do is really think back on the events of the past year. About a year ago, we start hearing about Wuhan, China. I didn't even know that place existed a year ago. I would love to go back to that, right? Just another place on the other side of the world. But think about it. A year ago, start hearing about a coronavirus. Don't know what a coronavirus is. Now I know. Now I've had it. Been there. Done that, all right? But you think about the past year, coronavirus, political upheaval, Arctic blasts and winter storms. Did you have peace through all that? Did you have peace or were you worried? Now, according to this passage, when the world loses its head and goes crazy, people start panic buying, stockpiling toilet paper. Christians ought to have a sense of peace. God is in control. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Of course, the Apostle Paul knew turmoil pretty well suffering under the Romans in a jail cell, he wrote to his friends in Philippi, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's one to memorize. Because if you want to be prepared for the end times, you've got to have peace through turmoil. So are you prepared for that. Do you know what it means to have the peace of God rule your heart and your mind in Christ? This is not just peace. You also need hope in God's future salvation. And that's what Daniel sees next in chapter 12. The vision continues, now at that time, that is when things are at their worst, at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but to the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You know, vision tells Daniel from his day until the end of time, facts of life will be political turmoil, not on an ever upward climb towards progress, but a slow descent to chaos. And can you imagine the world being any more chaotic than it is right now? I texted a couple of pastor friends yesterday. Hey, do you, get, do you guys think Christians will know when they're living in the immediate last days? We could discuss and debate that. There's reasons to be torn in different directions, okay? But, but really, do you think things could get worse? And of course, we know. You don't have to, you know, theorize, hypothesize, conjecturize. You know, based on the past year, Man, you think you're just about to turn the corner and your power goes out and stays out. Things could get worse. And according to Daniel's vision, it's at the moment 
when you get to the point where you think there's no possible way things could get any worse. There's no hope. It's done. Whatever God had said he was going to do, he's obviously changed his mind. Things could not possibly get any worse than this. There's no hope left. Boom. At that time, in that moment, Michael, the prince of the sons of your people, will arise. At that moment, two things will happen. This passage tells us. One, that king who reigns at the end of time, trying to subject all of God's people to unfaithfulness and lead us astray, he'll be defeated and the dead will be raised. Now we know this because this chapter, Daniel chapter 12, ends up echoing through the rest of Scripture. And there are really two places where it shows up most clearly. Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus speaks to his disciple on the Mount of Olives, talking to them about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. And then in the book of Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20, both events, the destruction of the Antichrist and the resurrection, show up in both places so clearly. So you can look at Matthew 24 and 25 together. Today we're going to kind of zoom in on Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. And the first event that happens when Michael arises, the prince over the sons of your people, is the destruction of the Antichrist. We see this in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. I'll give you a chance to get there. This is going to blow your minds. If you've like said, hey, Revelation is bizarre, I'm not even looking at it. You're about to get your mind blown, and I hope you enjoy it, because this is crazy. Matthew, uh, Revelation 19.11. John is relaying this vision he's receiving from Jesus, the angels of heaven. And in verse 11, he says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now that one there gets me. Jesus has a name that you don't even know. There's so much about God that lies beyond our understanding. We don't know him like we think we know him. No one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, our kids are learning about those armies right now. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel. An angel, right? Michael, the high priest, or Michael, one of the princes over the sons of your people, will arise. Saw an angel standing in the sun. That doesn't blow your mind. Nothing will, folks. An angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, and perf who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. That is the same scene that Daniel's vision portrays. Not in his exact detail, right? But it is the same scene. That at the end of time, when all the armies of the beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, have arrayed themselves against Jesus, at that exact moment, he appears. He says in Matthew 24, he'll come riding on the clouds of heaven. Nobody will be able to escape his sight. It'll be a public appearance. Nobody will be able to say, hey, you're imagining that, or that's just a hallucination you guys are having. Come on, get real. It will be obvious, an inescapable reality. And on that day, he will judge all his enemies. He'll slay the beast, and he'll once and for all rule and reign. But the second event is important not just from the political sphere, but the personal. Because the second event is the resurrection of the dead. Daniel says that on that day, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. I don't think he means many, but not all. I think he sees it, and he cannot count it. Many, many, many people will arise. An innumerable multitude. Many people will arise from the sleep in the dust of the ground, and they will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and eternal torment. John sees this too. And in Revelation 20:11, he says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the second fire. See, we believe, with all our hearts as Christians, that there is coming a day when God will finally act, we hope in God's final salvation, that all of human opposition that will one day be collected up in this one terrible tyrant will be judged. Jesus will slay them all. And at the same time, he'll raise our bodies up to live with him forever. That is the hope of the Christian life, a future resurrected body to live with God forever and ever and ever. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. He praises God for causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's not just any inheritance, not the kind of inheritance that's sort of ebbs and flows with the rise and fall of the stock market, not the kind of inheritance that's tied up in a house that can have frozen pipes and can fall apart. The kind of inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who are being guarded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You want to be prepared for the end times. You have to get beyond placing your hope in the stuff that Jesus says, moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And you have to set your hope on the final salvation of God at Christ's appearing. 
Though we suffer turmoil each day, we have to know in our souls, believe it, that that is the thing we're aiming for. That's the only thing that will sustain faith in the days in which we're living. So Christians, set your hope on Christ. But I want to warn you too, that if you don't know Jesus, you don't have hope. He said you have what the author of the letter to the Hebrews called the certain expectation of judgment. Because you will be raised up. It's an inescapable reality. And your deeds will be judged. And those who are not in Christ will be dismissed to everlasting judgment. So church, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Is your hope set on Jesus? Are you living your life like this world is all there is? Or do you believe there's something more? The third thing, probably most important of all, if you're going to be prepared for the end times, perseverance to the end. See, after Daniel sees this vision of resurrection, he's told to seal up the book, and he sees another couple of angels discussing together how long these things are going to take to actually happen. The divine messenger says, again, that phrase that we saw before, a time, a time, and a time and a half, three and a half times. And so Daniel's like, okay, but what's the outcome going to be? What's going to be the result of all this? I want to know, what does this mean? And in verse 10, verse 9, the messenger says, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you'll enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Listen, Daniel wanted to know, probably like you and me want to know, hey, will Christians living in the immediate last days before Christ's return know it? I want to know, am I living in the last days? The amazing thing about what Jesus tells Daniel, basically, Brad Mills' translation, none of your business. Go your own way. You worry about what it is for you to worry about. I already know. The time is set. The appointed time will come. You seal up the book, you're going to do your thing, and when the time is right, the time is right. But that doesn't satisfy me, Brad Mills. That doesn't satisfy me. And so instead, I need to learn the deeper lesson that the passage is meant to convey. It's not up to me or you to determine whether we're in the end times or not. All we have control over is whether we're going to persevere through the times we are living in. Are you going to keep your eyes set on the end? I think it's so weird. I'm just going to be honest with you about that. Verse 11 says, hey, it's 1,290 days. Then verse 12 says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. I wish you could read all the commentaries, try to figure out how those guys get around that. It's bizarre. But here's what I think it means. It's not, don't, I guess it's, have you ever ran in a race? Maybe you're a kid at field day, and you got all these, 
maybe relay races or 100-meter dash or something. Sometimes I find myself on YouTube watching the fail videos of people who are driving their car in a race or riding a bicycle in a race or skiing downhill in a race or running in a race. And they get so close to the finish line, they realize, I'm winning. And they start to celebrate. I've made it. They start to slow down. And inevitably, when they slow down, somebody passes them by and they lose. And I think that's the idea behind the 1,335 days. Don't let up. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't stop pedaling. Don't stop running. Attain to the very end of the end. Persevere. See, in the plan of God, even though you and I can't comprehend all that he has in store for us and all that the events of our lives mean, I don't know why our state suffered through the, the winter storm it did. But I assume that it has a purpose in God's plan. He says all that will happen between Daniel's day and the very end of time serves three purposes. It's to purge, purify, and refine. That until the very end of time, everything that you and I face is meant to purge, purify, and refine us. Peter talks about it as the crucible. You put the gold lumps in it, stick it in the furnace. And as the crucible heats up, the gold melts. And its impurities rise to the top and are skimmed off so that once it cools down, what you have is a purer form of gold than you had before. It's been refined. And that's what God is doing in each of us. He is refining us each and every day. We have to persevere through it to attain to the end. So the end time prophecies aren't really here to give us a definitive timeline of when certain things will take place. Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour. He describes his coming as a thief breaking into your house at night. It's going to be totally unexpected. So the end time prophecies aren't really about giving us definitive timelines so that we can mark it out on our calendar. Hey, I need to get my house in order because next week Jesus is going to show up. No, instead, they are meant to provoke in us a desire to run with all we've got for as long as we've got. That he could come at any moment. So don't take your foot off the gas. Keep pressing forward. You think about the past year, and I want to believe we're in the end times because I'm ready to see Jesus. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I just kind of like for all this to be done. But if it's not the end times, would we be okay to call it a dry run? This is a dry run. Here's a practice. You guys want to know how you'd handle the end times, Jesus says? Let me give you just a test, just a little sample, a taste. See how you'll react. Were you prepared? If the coronavirus had been the visible return of Christ, would you have been ready? You know, on Sunday, when I was getting the water for our house, I thought I was going overboard. And if you take the imminent return of Christ seriously, people think you're going overboard too. The early disciples, they knew Jesus was coming back soon, so they sold everything they had and shared it with those who were in need. But according to Daniel's vision, it's not up for us to know the time to mind our own business and be busy about what Jesus has given us to do. So I ask you again, like I asked you before, are you prepared for the end times? If you are, say, I'm ready. Are you prepared for the end times? If you are, say, I'm ready. Okay? 
Well, we got some work to do, y'all. <laughs> Gonna have to change my job description. It's like I was telling, I think John or Mike, I can't remember who I was telling, but in my hometown, Mobile, Alabama, there's a church. And on the front of the church, it's got the church's name. And in big silver letters underneath it, it says, Rapture Preparation Center. <laughs> so maybe we need to get one of those for out there, you know what I mean? So let me ask you again. If you are, say, I'm ready. Okay, good. You're ready. All right. Well, then church, if you're ready, that means when the world loses its head, you have an overwhelming sense of peace. When the world looks hopeless, you have hope. When things get hot, you persevere. You know, it also means, like Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, his parable of a servant, a slave, in a master's house. And it really got me this week. Matthew 24, 45. Jesus asked his disciples, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. But... If that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he doesn't expect him and at an hour when he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're really prepared and really ready, you know what will define your life? Wholehearted obedience to Jesus in every element. There's not enough bullets and freeze-dried meals that will get you through the day of His coming. The only thing that will will be the life you lived and the faith you placed in Him. Are you ready? And if in a minute ago when I asked you to say, I'm not ready, and you didn't say, I'm ready, but not because you didn't understand what I had asked, but because you're not ready. Today's the day to get ready. Now's the accepted time. Today's the day of salvation. You see, either Christ will come while you're alive, and one day, hopefully at the end of a long and fruitful life, you'll die and they'll place you in the ground, and then he'll come and raise you up and judge you. The return of Christ is an inescapable reality. It's not theoretical. It is for sure going to happen. And each one of us will have to personally deal with the repercussions. The only way to prepare is to know that when He opens His books, He's going to find your name there. And when He opens the book of life that records not just everything you did, but every thought you ever thought and every word you ever spoke, what will he find on you? What will he see? That is a reality that most people refuse to acknowledge. It's this theoretical thing, someday people somewhere are going to get judged, but not me. But you will. Either he'll come back one day when you're going about your daily life and it'll be a public thing and everybody will see it and he'll assemble all the earth before him and he'll judge or you'll wake up after a long sleep and look the master face to face. 
But you have an appointment with Him. Today's the day to prepare. Right now you are doing the spiritual equivalent of ignoring a hurricane warning and a winter storm watch. You're hoping that it doesn't turn out to be as bad as the weathermen say it's going to be. And that this is Texas, right? No way it could go that low. But he will return. And on that day, you will see how serious he is and how real his judgment is. So today, won't you repent and trust in Jesus? Won't you turn your life around? Won't you place all your hope and trust in him? Won't you say, enough wasting my time? Enough taking my chances? Today is the day that I settle once and for all that I am prepared to meet Jesus. If that's you today, I would love to speak with you. I'd love to help you, encourage you. I'd love to walk beside you. Help you figure out what life with Christ really means. And if you're ready to prepare yourself for the day of Christ's coming, please, after service, talk to me. Because I want you, and Jesus wants you to be prepared. You know, God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. His desire is not that he'd come back and find a million and million and million of people lined up ready to be judged forever. But his desire is that all would come to repentance. So join us in our preparation so that we can grow in the peace the hope and the endurance that Jesus gives us, and so that together as a church, we can show the world what it means to be faithful for the future. Will y'all pray with me?